Hello, and welcome to the Biggest Questions Podcast. I'm Jeffrey Stackert. And I'm Kevin Hector. And I'm really pleased to be able to welcome our guest today, who is Patrick Smith. He is Associate Research Professor of Theological Ethics and Bioethics at Duke Divinity School. He's also Senior Fellow at the Keenan Institute for Ethics at Duke. And so, Patrick, it's a, a real privilege to be able to welcome you to the podcast today. Patrick works on a range of issues from bioethics to social ethics, black church studies, philosophical theology, but we've got him here today to talk about his current work and his current projects. And so, Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about being here. Wonderful. So let's start maybe at the beginning and just say, tell us about the work that you're doing. Yeah, so uh, yeah, thanks for that. Uh, so right now I'm working on uh, questions of, um, in terms of with bioethics, looking at the role of um, race uh, and racism and how that plays out in questions of health, health outcomes and healthcare uh, access. Uh, and so I've just been interested in this for uh, quite some time. Um, when I started off doing work in bioethics, it was through hospice and palliative care. So I was an ethics coordinator uh, in that space. And one of the questions that we had to certainly wrestle with there is what does it mean to value life at the end of life? And so we you know, kind of wrestled with those questions over and over again in different ways uh, with different cases that would emerge in that space. Uh, as I continue to do that work, uh, and not only working with those who are presenting in our clinical space, but also hospice has, a, as many people know, a home care component. And as we started um, asking that question, what does it mean to value life at the end of life doing home care and working in particular communities, it quickly became uh, apparent uh, to me that uh, while asking that question, we have to ask, what does it mean to value life before the end of life? Mm -hmm. uh, really looking and wrestling with how poorly poor people died mm -hmm. or looking at the dynamics or the disparities with regard to how people die that's uh, kind of uh, divided along racialized lines in so many instances. And so for me, that's just how um, I came interest became interested in this larger question of you know, bioethics and how can questions of health disparities, healthcare disparities connect with questions of race, socioeconomic status? Uh, that's obviously both really interesting and really important work. Would you say a little bit more about a couple of things? One, can you give us some examples of the sort of disparities that you have in mind? Mm -hmm. And second, in your uh, role as an ethicist, what, what kinds of solutions do you favor to those disparities. Yeah, so let me just give you one, I think, that emerges, um, that, that can hit both of those at the same time. So I would uh, highlight maybe Black women's uh, reproductive health with regard to infant mortality. There are stark uh, discrepancies with respect to the number of black babies that are born in the very low birth weight category mm -hmm. and low birth weight category. And then there's a corresponding, you know, kind of, um, you know, infant mortality rate within, you know, within one year, if that long for babies that are born in that particular category. Uh, and so there's been a lot of research to look at this, right? Why are there so many black babies born uh, in this category as opposed to other individuals or other uh, people along racialized lines, one. And then also correspondingly with that, 
is the fact that um, black women have a tendency to die more during childbirth than other um, women who are, even if it's similarly situated along socioeconomic status, education level, and so on and so forth. Uh, and so this is one example uh, that I think arrests our moral attention in a particular way, especially when you start eliminating other explanatory factors. Right? Well, maybe it's education. Well, no, this is the same um, ratio with regard to those who are highly uh, educated. Um, you know, maybe it's socioeconomic status in some way. No, you know, that, that's kind of been ruled out by the data and the evidence. And what's really striking about this uh, is the fact that when you look at Black women who are either in the Caribbean or in Africa, they actually have the same rates in terms of uh, infant mortality and also their own kind of reproductive health as white women in America. It's only mm -hmm. after one generation of those folks coming to the United States where they begin to fall in this category uh, that you see many other African-American women or black women in the United States. And so there's something about being a black woman in the United States that cries out for our analysis. And so Kevin, for the second part of your question about as an ethicist, what do I you know, kind of think about this? Well, I think coming from a, a black church uh, tradition that has a priestly and a prophetic function, that prophetic function is really looking at the social conditions and the circumstances. How can one help speak truth to power to uh, alleviate the conditions that are prohibiting human flourishing of all human beings? And so if an explanatory mechanism of these disparities of birth, uh, infant mortality can be explained along a life course perspective that deals with racism uh, and systemic racism as a way of, of, of um, um, explaining these, these problems, then we have systemic work, right, that we have to do, kind of big picture stuff that can't be handled just in the clinic. And what does this mean for engaging in clinical ethics? Well, it means being very careful or aware of how the racialized imagination is at work in our various encounters, whether it be the snap judgments that we make. Uh, one quick example would be Serena Williams in 2017 when she had her first child. You know, uh, she was giving her history and saying, look, I have these problems. And when she was having trouble breathing and some other complications, uh, her testimony about that was really dismissed, right, in many ways. Uh, I would say giving due attention to this as a clinical ethicist is to be aware of that larger social history, be aware that there are forms of, you know, epistemic injustice that sometimes comes into those spaces and to allow for people to share what their testimony is and believe them and then act accordingly. Much more could be said, but I, 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 we can unpack that a little bit later on. Well, can I ask actually as a follow-up to that, you gave, I think, a really interesting, good example of what it means in a specific clinical space uh, to respond to some of these disparities that uh, you've identified. Uh, but you also made reference to systemic kinds of changes that are prompted uh, or the possibility of those changes that are prompted by the observations that you're making. Can you talk a little bit more about that systemic situation? Yeah, so I think the systemic situation is just going to be, uh, so part of the hypothesis uh, is just that you see um, 
because of the increased um, allostatic. Well, so in other words, there are these larger kind of pressures because of cultural or systemic racism that Black women are facing, in addition to the normal stressors that come up with just being pregnant. So my understanding is that I learned from clinicians, so I'm not trained as a clinician, but you know they often say that the birthing process is triggered uh, by certain stress hormones in the woman's body. And so one explanation is, is that with the extra stressors that are going on with the larger cultural and systemic dimensions, that it increases the allostatic load in Black women's bodies, along with the stress hormones that are already being generated, that triggers a more uh, premature births uh, more frequently. Uh, that is an explanation of how so many Black babies are ending up in this kind of low birth weight and very low birth weight category. Mm -hmm. So then part of what we have to wrestle with are the larger kind of systemic issues. So this is where social ethics comes into play. When we raise questions about housing uh, and how that plays out in terms of where uh, people live and the proximity of that housing to jobs where people can uh, earn uh, a decent wage, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so they're not having to work uh, multiple jobs if they have other kids what is the access of that towards you know public transportation right. uh, say and so these aren't just issues that emerge in the urban environment obviously we see these larger systemic issues uh, in more kind of rural uh, settings where there is not as much access to health care proximity to these spaces uh, it may be hard for people to be mobile uh, in that sense they don't get the due attention that they need and we know also know I would suggest uh, that many of our housing uh, arrangements, or let me put it this way, ghettos aren't just, they just don't happen, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's by policy, right? And, we, and there's a lot of data that suggests that in terms of sociological data. Uh, and so I think these policies are often playing a role. So can we identify what's doing the work, what's causing some of these conditions, uh, especially when there's a, a, a sense in which it's along racialized lines, and then how do we begin to mitigate that? And I think that's just the work of social ethics. So actually, that leads me to another question I want to ask you, and that is, you know, you're talking about a very applied ethics, one that has very concrete kind of implications in real-world situations that exist right now. What is the role of the ethicist in these conversations? So you're talking about the possibility of very concrete change. Uh, how does the ethicist play a role alongside of policymakers, clinicians, providers uh, in these conversations? Yeah, uh, I would just say there are probably plenty of ways, but two just pop into my mind where I see my work uh, coming in uh, most directly. One, I would say, especially somebody who's doing work in religious ethics, right, that uh, the religious ethicist can help expand the moral imagination, right, of uh, possibilities of the way the world could be. Uh, for me, in terms of my particular tradition, this notion of hope becomes really interesting, important, uh, infuriating, disappointing, exciting, all at the same time, right? Uh, because it's looking at the world and saying, look, things are not supposed to be this way. And hope is saying, look, there may not be much evidence, right? That I am thinking that things will be better, but I have to have a vision of the world, a moral vision of the world of how we bump into each other, how we do life together. That's different. That's a bit better than the way things are now. And it's that kind of vision of hope that kind of drives the moral impetus. And so I think that religious ethicists can help 
give uh, identify themes and tropes uh, and values and ways of connecting that, uh, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, that inescapable network of mutuality as we all live in this shared world house of how we can do life together a, a bit better. And so I do think that expanding our moral imagination uh, is one way uh, that that can happen. And then also, I think, uh, just identifying uh, particular values that emerge in social ethics to serve as kind of signposts uh, or markers, if you will, as people are working um, to mitigate these um, disparities at the ground level. Let me try to explain what I mean by that. It's a little vague there. Sure. Uh, so in other words, it's just questions that we have to ask. So if we're thinking about a policy as to uh, how do we begin to mitigate the impacts of something like COVID-19? Well, then I would want to say something like this. Any effort that we're doing, we have to ask ourselves a question first and foremost, how do these policies affect the most vulnerable or those who are at the margins or the most disenfranchised, right? How can we center their perspective and their situatedness in a way that we're not crafting policy that's yes, working for the common good, but further marginalizes those who are already on the margins. And there's a way that you can work for the common good while centering on the margins in a particular way, uh, especially with something like pandemics, because pandemics know no boundaries, right? And so this is where it's really true. Uh, and it, I mean, it already was true, but it's really true that people can see it, uh, that we are caught in this inescapable network of mutuality uh, and that the well-being of some of us is necessarily tied to the well-being um, of others as well. So I would just say that kind of a question that religious social ethics can bring to the table just reminds any of us who are doing policy work mm -hmm. to say, how are these policies impacting those at the margins? Are these policies widening the gap with respect to disparities? Or can our policies work in a way that it begins to lessen that gap? That's really helpful. I had in mind a version of Jeff's question, but it comes at it from a slightly different angle. It sounds like listening to you talk, part of what's so important about your work is it, it engages lots of different facets of an important problem that has lots of stakeholders in it. And so I can imagine your work potentially having lots of different audiences. So I, I noted there are policymakers, healthcare professionals, the would-be patients, right? People who are going to be susceptible to these kinds of disparities, church folks, academics, right? Academics in religious ethics. Um, you don't have to respond with respect to all of those potential audiences, but I'd be interested to hear specifically, like in a couple of sentences, what would you want each of those audiences to get from the sort of work that you're doing? Um, that it is true that we are literally all in this together, but we're not in it together in the same way. Uh, and that um, we all have a responsibility in this, even if we don't share the same responsibilities equally, right? Uh, and that's, that's a bit of, of a mouthful, but it's just this idea that this is the world in which we live and it's too easy often for any of us to kind of wall ourselves off uh, from these issues. But we all have a part that we can play 
regardless of our station in life. And let me just close it by this. My uncle, uh, Nelson H. Smith Jr., was a civil rights leader in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, pastored there for 53 years, worked very closely with Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Fred Shuttlesworth himself, both co-founded the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights uh, that uh, King mentions in his letter from Birmingham City Jail. Uh, and um, it was an affiliate of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And um, a lot of that history of his work and many others who were on the ground, you know, it's been recorded uh, in Alabama history there. But I raised that to say that when he would, you know, he traveled all over the world when he would, you know, preach and speak and do different kinds of things. And as I lived in different places throughout the United States, uh, we would often, when he, he would call, uh, whenever he was in a particular town and he would, he's one of those, he was one of those individuals would say, Hey, not what are you doing at 2 30 uh, PM? Uh, if you can come in, it's like, well, I'm going to be here at three o'clock. You need to be there at three o'clock to meet me for lunch right, or something like that. And then you adjusted your schedule accordingly uh, to do that. But one of the things he would often ask, he says, Hey, you know, what are you working on? What are you thinking about? What are you doing? And he would sit there and kind of listen, nod a few times. And then after I would finish, he, it was this long pause. Well, it was only probably about five or 10 seconds, but it felt like five or 10 minutes sometimes. <laughs> and then he would often just look and then he would just say, that's nice. That's all wonderful. But then he would just say, don't forget about the people, right? And that was always his message. I remember that over and over again, don't forget about the people. And so my word to all those various constituencies, whatever your station of life is, whatever your work is, let's just not lose sight of the people. I think that's a, a remarkable story in, in a number of ways. And it goes to the point that I heard you making and maybe something that stands behind uh, what you were saying. And that is that this message that we're all responsible, that we're all in this together is sometimes a hard sell. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you made reference earlier uh, to the way that the pandemic uh, has sort of moved throughout uh, all levels of society and that there's a way in which people understand uh, the, the reach of a public health emergency like a pandemic perhaps differently than uh, some of the, the issues that you're dealing with, uh, with infant mortality and uh, pregnancy outcomes and that sort of thing. And so I guess I'd ask you, how do you go about uh, convincing people that we really are in this together? Uh, that this really is a responsibility that they have? That's the million dollar question, right? And I, <laughs> I mean, I wish I had a, an easy uh, answer to it. I mean, the reality is, is that too many of us uh, think that my well-being is simply not tied to the well-being or the flourishing of others. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just a, a very you know, stark way of putting it. There are many of our, especially in such a tribalistic context in which we, you know, find ourselves, mm -hmm. um, there are probably um, communities of people that feel like things would be better, right? Mm -hmm. If certain individuals just were not with us, right? Mm -hmm. uh, or they create a burden that's stifling, flourishing. And while I don't want to necessarily get it in, get into it here, I mean, I've been doing some thinking and reading about uh, these questions of of kind of neoliberalism and and when we think about anthropology and, and what kinds of beings are we uh and have we gotten so caught up in the idea that we're economic beings that we are uh, missing something that's so foundational and fundamental about our humanity and so this is where jeffrey to your very important question this is where i lean into the tradition that kind of nurtured me and there's a phrase that uh it's not 
uh, only to this tradition, but it's certainly something that emerges when we talk about bearing witness, right? Mm -hmm. uh, just bearing witness in our words and our bodies uh, of what it means to stand in solidarity with others, to continue to um, trumpet that particular call, that solidarity is important, that our lives are connected, whether we like it or not, and recognize that not everyone will be convinced, uh, but then often say, what are the alternatives, mm -hmm. right? Uh, do we just kind of throw up our hands and just say, well, well, people aren't gonna be convinced, so we, what do we do, right? We stop? No, we continue to bear witness and we try to model uh, the best of what I think uh, this looks like. And so uh, the way I've wrestled with this is that I think something, again, to use another religious trope, right? That something like a conversion needs to happen, <laughs> right? When you start, especially if we're talking about these questions of the racialized imagination mm -hmm. and how race and racism might be playing a role uh, in some of this, it's really difficult to make headway. Mm -hmm. uh, if people don't have a kind of conversion to say, you know what, let me stop and just see this from a very different frame of reference. Mm -hmm. If I'm only trying to think about this through the logical lens of a predominantly, let's just say, white frame of reference, it's going to always be difficult to unpack that because a white frame of reference has an error theory built into it that mm -hmm. protects itself mm -hmm. in some ways. And so I would just say uh, that we have to continue to bear witness uh, and appeal to as many people as we can appeal to make the arguments that we can make with as much substance as we can, but not forget about the humanities, the arts and literature and music. Mm -hmm. right? This has a way of penetrating, I think, the heart and the mind in a way that can precipitate that conversion. And this is from our tradition. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the, the James Baldwin's. This is the Toni Morrison's, right? Mm -hmm. When she was very uh, depressed about a political uh, and ethical upheaval and one of her fellow artists reached out to her when she was depressed and he says, no, no, no. This is the time that artists do their work in times of political and moral upheaval. It is not your job to sit on the sidelines. You're up now, mm -hmm. right? And I think those resources can come to the table to help facilitate that work. I want to uh, turn a little bit to a slightly different corner of your work. So you mentioned several things just then, but uh, quote unquote theory wasn't one of them, but at least in previous conversations, I've heard you talk a little bit about the role that a theory of race can play in working on some of these disparities. And this is obviously a hotly contested issue. Some people think if we did away with the, at least the racialized conception of race, that would go some way toward doing, you know, dealing with some of these kinds of disparities. Other people think if we do away with the concept of race, it'll make it harder to deal with some of these things. Anyway, I know that you have worked on a position on this. So I'd, I'd just be interested in hearing you say a little bit more about that. Yeah. Wow. Thanks, uh, uh, Dr. Hector, for that. Um, yeah, this concept of race is, is really <laughs> uh, complex. And uh, I actually take the angle, right, that it's a socio-political construct. I want to say that it's a real thing. Uh, yes, it's a social ontology, but I also want to say at the same time that is not rooted in kind of human genetics or 
human biology in a particular way, uh, such that as some philosophers of race would call biological realism with respect to race, meaning that race is a category that's genetic, such that uh, you think about, you know, black people or African Americans, right? Well, they have a particular genetic makeup so that any of the disparities that we see, any of the health issues, well, it's because that's just how their bodies are. Uh, and so there's no, there are no injustices that we have to wrestle with. There are no systemic or cultural issues we have to wrestle with. That's just who they are, right? And there's a long history of biological realism with respect to race, not only talking about these disparities, but also the perceived inferiority, right, of non-white races, often that's based on this notion of biological realism. Now, uh, so I, I, I do not accept race as an understanding uh, based on kind of biological realism. I do, however, think that it is a socio-political construct that's built upon, built around a particular imagination that shapes how we view one another, how we encounter, how we include, how we exclude, who we consider as part of the social hierarchy, who is not part of the social hierarchy, and those arrangements, socio-political arrangements, have real impacts and real effects that have uh, had a deleterious impact, let's just say, on, on Black people in America, right? Or the, let's say African Americans, just to be a little bit more specific mm -hmm. uh, at this point. And so we talk about doing away with the concept of race, right, as a socio-political construct with these kind of hierarchical narratives built in. Of course, I think at some point we will want to uh, try to get rid of those kinds of narratives. But the problem is, is that if we just try to do that right now without addressing uh, the uh, deleterious impacts of race, on let's say the African-American community, then we're just going to solidify current injustices. So I think we need the concept of race to identify those groups that have been marginalized on the basis of race so that we can invoke as political philosophers would suggest a principle of redress, right? That identifies the wrongs and then how can we move in a concrete way towards more material forms of justice? I'm not sure how we do that without still understanding the idea of race as a socio-political construct. So while I agree that um, if it is understood in these hierarchical ways of structuring our lives, that needs to be eradicated, but we have to be very careful in how we do it because we're gonna miss uh, the principle of redress and how that should be operationalized if we try to do away with it altogether. We can't do it yet, at least that's my take on that, acknowledging that people have different perspectives on that. So actually, let me follow up on this and uh, ask you maybe to comment a bit on the role of race in contemporary theological reflection and ethical, uh, religious ethical thought. And to do so, I want to go back to something that you said earlier that I thought was uh, really important. You, you mentioned the importance of moments of crisis for the generation of art uh, in its various forms. And I know that I've, I've talked with Kevin some in the past about uh, the role of crisis in the development of new theological ideas. Uh, and it seems that, you know, one of the experiences of 2020 is an awakening around crises of race in America. And so to hear you, you know, theorize very clearly uh, race and its role 
and how to understand it in relation to uh, current situations. Can you reflect a bit on what you see as the opportunity for theology and ethics in this moment of crisis related to race? Yeah, um, well, thanks uh, so much for that, Jeffrey. Um, I think it's a tremendous opportunity to replay conversations that have taken place in generations past. And what do I mean? The racialized imagination, right, in terms of the fact that we're all racialized and our sociopolitical life is built upon that, could not have been so deeply entrenched in our larger body politic without science and religion. There's absolutely no way. And when you talk about the United States paradigm, when you say religion, then that automatically brings in certain expressions of Christianity, yeah. okay? Uh, the, the reality is that there's no aspect of our pi private, public, or civic life that has been untouched by the racialized imagination. Education, law, healthcare, policing, criminal mm -hmm. justice, sports, media, religion, politics. I mean, we could just, whatever you name housing right transportation right mm -hmm. we we can we can give chapter and verse in terms of data uh where the racialized imagination was at work uh in these various uh social arrangements so uh, again as i've uh, stated before uh this is just going to be with us and so religion or let's say certain expressions of american christianity has helped prop that up and so i think what we have to go back and see is that not every aspect, but much of our theological discourse or our, theolog or our theological constructs, right, are partially cultural aesthetics, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and they're cultural artifacts with a particular aesthetic, right, and judgment that comes along uh, with them uh, as well. So I think it's really important for us to go back and interrogate again uh, the genesis of our theological ideas. Uh, the resources that those um, theological constructs were drawing upon and seeing if we can have a retrieval work, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of how can we retrieve that which is the best of this tradition. And so I'm very grateful uh, to be familiar, right? Or, or nurtured by this kind of African-American Christian experience, right? This kind of black church tradition that were, that many of those uh, originators there they they were eavesdropping mm -hmm. right they were eavesdropping on on this this notion of, of of jesus right so they were hearing the message that was given to them to remain docile and to remain in their place right using the bible to do that but they also overheard the liberating message of jesus the kind of jesus that stood with the disinherited according to howard thurman who stood with those whose backs are against the wall what does the religion of Jesus have to say, right, to those whose backs are against the wall? And so for me, I think this provides a moment uh, such that, a, a moment such that we can, uh, again, look at Jesus, a Jesus that, yes, came from high, so maybe a high Christology for those uh, theologians who, like myself, want to be tied to the larger Christian tradition, but also can see the Jesus that came from on high to dwell below in the incarnation. And so we meet this embodied Jesus with the, all the particularities of being gendered, being a particular ethnicity, coming at a particular time in a particular geographical space. So these details of our lives matter. And then we can see 
what Jesus was concerned about, the poor, the marginalized, the disinherited, the disenfranchised, as that connects with the very heart of God, as Jesus, according to Christian tradition, is the incarnation of God. So you mentioned Howard Thurman there, and I'm, your response made me think about when you, when you do this replaying of conversations, one of the things you do is you try to f- see more clearly the ways in which the racialized imagination has shaped those conversations so as to resist the kind of pull of that. One of the other things I imagine happens when you do this replaying of conversations is you start to see, oh, this this figure or these ideas seem even more promising now. Maybe Howard Thurman is an example of that. But I'd be interested, as you've done that sort of replaying work, are there any figures or any ideas or movements that have stood out to you as more promising or even surprisingly promising? Oh, wow, Kevin. Uh, (laughs) Wow. Um, And so the question becomes like, you know, more uh, in this moment, I think maybe I'll, I'll put it this way. And I hope this gets at your question. Keep me honest and bring me back to it. If this is, (laughs) if if it's uh, missing the point in some ways. So I would say that, it's just a kind of a reappropriating because again, these voices have, have been with us in many respects, us being, you know, the larger, you know, uh, kind of Christian community, but they often don't have pride of place in certain spaces for those who were nurtured in a particular tradition. Uh, many of them have been exposed uh, to these voices, right. In different ways. And so, for me and my work in bioethics, I've, I've tried to say, okay, look, bioethics is an interdisciplinary uh, type of field of discourse. It brings together a lot of different facets. And so if I'm going to be uh, embodied in that space, how do I bring together all of who I am? So for me, the kind of retrieval work has been drawing from Martin Luther King Jr., right? His ethical and political thought that was certainly undergirded theologically. And for all the analyses that have been given with somebody like Martin Luther King Jr. say of his, you know, kind of academic training, the influence of personalism uh, and some of these other, you know, philosophers or religious, you know, ethicists that informed him, which certainly they did. uh, One cannot discount the influence of the black church tradition, that cultural womb, if you will, that protected him from the larger societal wounds on the outside, right? And one of the beautiful things about that tradition is that we can always return, right? We can always return to the nourishing aspect of that cultural womb. So I think that the work of somebody like Martin Luther King Jr. uh, and his vision of beloved community is something that we can return to, to kind of trumpet and figure out what it looks like in our contemporary setting without, you know, a sense of, oh, well, that's just kind of um, naive idealism. No, there's something there. You mentioned, as I'd mentioned as well, Howard Thurman, again, the kind of spiritual um, nourishment for many of the civil rights leaders, right? Kind of wrestling, uh, thinking about these issues. I've tried to return uh, to his voice uh, once again in thinking about these issues. A surprising voice uh, for some because people don't think associate him with um, a kind of a religious vision, 
but James Baldwin, right? Uh, you know, James Baldwin grew up as a you know preacher's kid. He was a young preacher preaching in a storefront church. And when you listen to Baldwin carefully, uh, in some ways, even though he left that uh, little storefront church, many suggest that they're not sure if that storefront church left him fully. Uh, he also leaned into this kind of agapist tradition that's based on this understanding of agape uh, love, right, uh, in some ways. And he, as frustrated as he would get, as, as, as uh, prickly as he might be in some of his analyses, he didn't seem to give up, right, uh, on this idea of, of love in particular ways. So I, th I think I'll, I'll kind of, uh, you know, stop there. But there are other theologians that, you know, I've drawn from, you know, people like J.D. O.S. Roberts, uh, you know, as well, as well as many others uh, that I'm constantly in dialogue uh, and engaging as I wrestle with these issues. Just to, just to make it clear, that was an excellent answer to my question. So, oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. One wonders at times, right? You know, who knows? So don't want to ramble, so. Not at all, Patrick. Uh, we like to ask all of our guests uh, on the podcast, what is your biggest question? And folks take this in, in different directions. This could be what really animates uh, all of your work. It might be something that uh, would be the biggest question in the current project that you're working on. Uh, but if we put the question to you, what's your biggest question? Oh, boy. Um. I think my, my biggest question is how can my work um, give uh, an insightful analysis of these larger uh, kinds of questions of disparities that can um, contribute to what many people have identified as a third reconstruction, right? So you have maybe the first reconstruction after the Civil War. How do you you know put the the country you know back together again? Um, was fourteen fifteenth you know amendments right? Uh, of course, you see the lynch mob backlash to some of that. Uh, another hundred years or so, uh, then you see uh, kind of uh, from the end of World War II through maybe the late nineteen sixties, early nineteen seventies with the civil rights movement, and then you see. Uh, again, kind of this second reconstruction emerging where uh, you see the uh, kind of desegregation taking place, demise of uh, Jim and Jane Crow, uh, in many respects, the passage of the 64 Civil Rights Act, 65 Voting Rights uh, Act. Uh, but then we also see a continued uh, kind of backlash even to some of those gains where we may have de jure progress but still de facto uh, kinds of, of problems, right? So yes, there's been some progress with respect to the law and policy, at least in its language. And yes, some progress as well. So I do think John Lewis is right there, you know, some progress. Uh, but we also have to acknowledge uh, that there's, for every step forward, it sometimes feels like it's two steps back. Mm -hmm. uh, and so how do we move from kind of this de jure progress to more de facto? Uh, progress. And so I think the big question that I see myself as wrestling with and grappling with, how can the work that I'm doing in a very kind of narrow field of reference, right, in bioethics, healthcare ethics, how might that, even in a small way, contribute towards this larger kind of third reconstruction that I think our world, uh, particularly our country, but certainly our world, uh, needs to engage in so that things can be just a bit better than they are right now. 
That is a big question indeed, and one that you're well positioned to contribute to our thinking about, and we're grateful for that. I find myself feeling already a sort of regret about the fact that this conversation has to end at some point. Um, but our promise to you means it does have to end at some point. So <laughs> with some sadness, uh, we and, will. Well, and, and probably to the relief of your listeners no, as well. No, right? no, 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 just the I'm opposite. Just the opposite. <laughs> but we will get you out of here on this. Uh, we, we often find when we talk to friends of ours in different fields that there are ways that people uh, outside of their field just don't sort of understand what goes on, right? What kind of work you're doing. And so you get a chance to make a public service announcement. Uh, what is it <laughs> that you wish people outside of your field, whether it's bioethics or religious ethics or some other version of this, what is it that you wish people outside of your field understood about the sort of work that you do? The, what they, uh, in terms of what they think about the kind of work that I do. Um, well, let me, well, let me just answer it this way. Uh, I, th I think what I want them to kind of take away from this, this bigger picture is that even if you have a hard time thinking about, you know, racial disparities and the racialized imagination and the fact that we're all, you know, complicit, even if you have a hard time seeing yourself as being morally like blameworthy, say, we still have to see ourselves as being all morally responsible, right? This is the world in which we find ourselves in, whether we like it or not. It is part of the human predicament of living in the United States and all of us, all of us are morally responsible for creating a better world. This has been the Biggest Questions podcast. Uh, our special guest today has been Patrick Smith. Patrick, this has been really such uh, a privilege to have this conversation. So thank you so much. Uh, and uh, we really hope that uh, you'll do it again with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me again.